0: Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See Club for details.
1: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 22 the fall of the Dutch East Indies and the rise of Indonesia, 1945 to 1949. I'm your host, Jeff Hoag. So in this episode, we're going to briefly outline the rise of the Dutch East Indies, the colony's subsequent fall, the rise of the Republic of Indonesia, and how all of this factored into the Cold War. Before I begin, I want to apologize for any mispronunciations as I do not speak Dutch or Indonesian. In the 17th century, Indonesia was not a united nation, but an assortment of predominantly Muslim island kingdoms, as the islands lacked any central authority. The Portuguese had begun to trade in the region, first arriving in this early 16th century. Eventually, Portugal came to dominate the spice trade from the Far East to Europe. Antwerp and Holland at this time were possessions of the Hasburg Empire, as were Spain and Portugal. Therefore, Antwerp became the major point of distribution for spices in northern Europe. Many of the merchants in Antwerp and Holland grew rich from this trade. However, with the Dutch War for Independence, which started in 1581, Dutch merchants lost access to this trade via the Habsburg Empire in Portugal. The Dutch, still wanting a piece of the action, started to send their own merchant ships to the Far East for this lucrative trade. These journeys were long and perilous. Storms, pirates, disease, and shipwreck were all serious dangers, but the profits were huge, with some expeditions making as much as 400% profit. Merchants therefore established short-term companies, spreading out the risk, and insurance companies first came into being to protect customers against these dangers. However, they also faced the, the risk of market fluctuations, or the old invisible hand of supply and demand. If most of the merchants' fleets arrived home roughly around the same period, Demand for spices could plummet as the supply grew too great, thus wiping out whatever profits the merchants sought to make. Therefore, the Dutch government decided to create a cartel or monopoly over the spice trade in Holland and in 1602 created the United East Indies Company, or VOC. The company controlled all trade between Holland and Asia and was publicly traded on one of the first stock markets. It had the power to conclude trees with Asian kingdoms, create an army and a navy, establish trading bases, and wage war. The following year, the first trading fort was established in Java, as was one in Jakarta in 1611. In 1607, through an alliance with the Sultan of Ternate, the Dutch achieved a monopoly over the production of cloves. Seeing the possibility of greater profits, the company captured Jakarta uh, in 1619 and renamed the city Batavia. Life in the VOC was hard and hazardous as company employees would spend years living overseas. The mortality uh, rates were high as many died from disease or war as the Dutch battled native peoples, the Portuguese, and English for control of the region. Many company merchants also took local women for their wives, and mixed-race cultural communities began to develop. In 1610, the post of Governor General was established to enforce central control over the company's operations in Asia. Although a board of 17 shareholders oversaw the company back in Holland, the governor in effect became the first CEO in history making most of the business decisions in Asia. Like other Europeans, the Dutch had very little to trade in Asia besides silver and gold. So like the Portuguese before them, they relied on inter-Asian trade and used profits from these sales to buy goods to send back to Europe. Silver and copper from Japan were used to trade with China, and India for silk, cotton, porcelain, and textiles. These were then traded for spices, and the spices were sent back to Europe. From 1615 to 1621, the Dutch gained control of the Banana Islands, where they massacred most of the native population. With this conquest, they gained control of the nutmeg trade. In 1641, they seized control of Malacca from the Portuguese, giving them greater control of the region essentially eliminating the Portuguese presence from the island chain. Over the next 20 years, the VOC expanded their control of the region through military campaigns and treaties. By 1669, the VOC had become the richest company in the world. At its peak, the company had some 150 merchant ships, 40 warships, a private army of 10,000 men, and 50,000 employees. However, a series of Anglo Dutch wars between 1672 and 1784 bankrupted the, co- the company. In 1769, the company was nationalized and the government allowed its charter to lapse in 1800. In 1806, Holland fell to Napoleon, who made his brother king. Great Britain subsequently occupied the Dutch East Indies until they were returned to the Dutch in 1816. Starting in the 1820s, the Dutch began to expand their control of the island chain through a series of military campaigns once again. In order to expand their economic influence, uh, the Dutch king in 1824 established a new company, the Netherlands Trading Society, or NHM, organized very much like the old VOC to promote trade and development throughout the colony. During the 1830s, the Dutch also formed the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army, or KNIL. It was a separate branch of the Dutch Armed Services, sort of like the Marine Corps in the United States. Unlike the Dutch Army, which was composed of conscripts during this period, the KNIL was made up of volunteers with 40 to 60 percent of the troops made up of indigenous peoples. Troops from Africa and Switzerland were also recruited for a short period as well. Life under the Dutch was pretty grim. Colonial subjects had to pay a land tax of 20% of their crops to the Dutch government or work on a Dutch plantation for 60 days. This policy made the Dutch East Indies an immensely profitable colony. Between 1830 and 1870, 1 billion guilders were taken from Indonesia on average, making up 25% of the annual Dutch government budget. This policy, however, resulted in the economic ruin of the Javanese peasants who suffered famine and in de- epidemics in the 1840s as a result of these policies. In the 1860s, a former colonial administrator, Max Halvazar, began a public relations crusade to, pu- to publish the brutality of Dutch rule and its mistreatment of the native peoples. This led to a reform of Dutch colonial policy, and in 1901, the Dutch announced that the Netherlands accepted an ethical responsibility for the welfare of their subject peoples which was in sharp contrast to Dutch policy up to that point that emphasized profit above all else. The Dutch also eliminated formal slavery, widow-burning, and cannibalism, which had been practiced by some tribes. Dutch education was also introduced to the Indonesians. Initially, many were reluctant, but as the years passed, the Indonesians became enthusiastic for a Western education. They sought education to improve themselves and embrace Western concepts of the Enlightenment and the idea of the nation-state. They adopted a new faith in progress and modernization. In many ways, this process laid the seeds for the Indonesian state. After the 1870s, agrarian reforms did away with the 20% tax on crops. However, large companies came in and established large corporate plantations, clear-cutting forests and planting new cash crops such as tea and rubber, which flourished. Oil also became a big commodity as oil was discovered in Sumatra. The oil company Shell was formed during this period and today is the fifth largest company in the world with at last year's revenues at $556 billion. That's the equivalent of 84% of Holland's contemporary GDP. The Dutch East Indies came to produce most of the world's pepper supply and about a third of its rubber supply. By 1940, it was the world's fourth largest exporter of oil. By 1910, the island chain was pacified and more or less under complete Dutch control. The Dutch invested heavily developing the Dutch East Indies through building 42,000 miles of roads, 4,700 miles of rail, irrigation systems, and several harbors from 1800 to 1950. The steamship and the telegraph helped to unify the colony, and it closed the distance between the individual islands and Holland itself. The Suez Canal also helped to shorten this trip with its opening in 1869. By 1930, $200 had been invested in the Dutch East Indies, and 73% of this was Dutch investment. It was also estimated that between one in five Dutch depended on trade with the Dutch East Indies for employment. The first half of the 20th century saw large-scale immigration from Europe to the Dutch East Indies. Most Dutch worked for the colonial authority or for private companies like Shell or NHM. By 1930, the European population reached about 240,000, which made up about 0.5% of the population. And technically, 75% of these, quote, Europeans were Indo-Europeans, or people of mixed European and Indonesian heritage. Indonesians and Chinese emigrants made up another 60 million people living in the Dutch East Indies. The Indonesians were comprised primarily of three different cultural and linguistic groups the Javanese, the Coastal Islamic, and non-Islamic peoples. The Javanese were by far the largest single group, comprising over 40% of the Indonesian population, inhabiting the most densely cultivated eastern two-thirds of the island of Java. The Coastal Islamic peoples were less populous than the Javanese, but were diverse and geographically scattered throughout the island chain. They had not only Islam in common, but a trading orientation versus farming, and primarily spoke Malayan. The final group, non-Islamic, were diverse peoples in the outer islands of the Dutch East Indies. They had been converted to Christianity in the 16th century, although many were still Hindu animists. These people were very isolated, with uh, many not coming into contact with the Dutch until the 20th century. The coastal Islamic Indonesians had suffered the most under the Dutch as they had directly competed against them in trade when the Dutch first arrived. The Javanese suffered as well as they came to pay heavy tax burdens from the 1820s to the 1870s. The non-Islamic peoples on the Outer Islands had a more complex and beneficial relationship with the Europeans as their crop sales benefited themselves and European and Chinese businessmen. For example, in 1929, 239,000 households in Java, or about 2.9% of the population, earned over 300 guilders a year whereas on the Outer Islands, 698,000 households, or about 19%, earned over 300 guilders a year. Much of it went to European and Chinese businessmen to buy consumer goods like bicycles, sewing machines, radios, etc. Some 400,000 Indonesians also traveled to Mecca during this time and were disproportionately represented, some years even making up about half of the pilgrims. These small landholders grew a major share of the export crops like tea or rubber. However, these farmers typically retained some stake in rice as a security against the fluctuations in the price of export crops. The 1920s and 1930s saw a substantial influx of money into Indonesian hands. This export boom allowed for many Indonesians to move into different trades like shopkeeping and even finance. There were two separate legal systems in the Dutch East Indies, one for the Europeans and one for the native peoples. The colony had a strict caste system with the Dutch at the top along with other white European immigrants. Under them came the mixed-race people or the Indo-Europeans. These were followed by former Indonesian aristocrats. They lacked any real power but became immensely wealthy under the Dutch. They were given the colonial titles of resident, assistant resident, and controller. This was followed by the Chinese, many of whom were merchants, and finally the Indonesians and other foreign orientals. Foreign orientals isn't my term. That's the term that was used by the Dutch, just as a point of clarification. So that could mean Asians from any other part of what we would today consider Asia. The Dutch East Indies was a centralized state by 1910. The Dutch government appointed a governor general, like in the old VOC, to run the colony. The governor-general functioned as an executive head of the colony and commander-in-chief of the KNIL. He had absolute control over the colonial press and could censor or restrict any publication. He also had the power to exile people from the colony. Despite his great executive powers, the Ministry of the Colonies directed policy from back in Holland. In 1918, a People's Council was established as an advisory board composed of 30 Indonesians, 25 Europeans, and 5 Chinese with elections held every four years. Very few people were, however, capable of voting in these elections. During the 1920s and 1930s, a small elite of Dutch-educated Indonesians came to the fore who sought independence. The term Indonesia came into use and caught on as a concept. In this way, Indonesians thought of themselves as part of a wider nation that spread across the island chain, encompassing the lands of the Dutch East Indies as its own independent state versus a nationalism based around their individual islands like Java or Sumatra. Many organized around Islamic societies in opposition to Dutch rule. The Indonesian Communist Party was formed in 1920, the PKI. In 1926, the communists attempted a colony-wide uprising that was quickly crushed by the Dutch authorities. Most of their members were arrested and or exiled, effectively marginalizing the communists from the political picture until the 1940s. By 1927, a new group, the Indonesian National Party, or PNI, a secular party led by Sukarno, the son of an aristocratic family and a Dutch-educated engineer. Sircano, it should be noted, was a gifted man and could speak seven languages fluently. The PNI endorsed a secular state and was, in essence, a single-issue party. The party was, of course, quickly outlawed by the Dutch, with many of its leaders, including Circano himself, jailed and eventually exiled. The Dutch government took a hard line against nationalist movements in the 1930s. Both Hendrik Kulgen, the Prime Minister, and B.C. de jong the governor general, were former directors of Shell Oil. De Jong publicly announced that Holland had been in the Indies for 300 years and would be there for another 300. The Dutch police arrested nationalists, broke up meetings, and even arrested people if they implied that the economic difficulties of the Indonesians were related to Dutch rule. This clampdown did silence the clamoring for independence, but it also created a stark contrast between the Dutch were seen as foreign rulers and the Indonesians themselves who clearly had no right in their own nation. Despite the best efforts of the PNI and the PKI, the vast majority of Indonesians were outside of the independence movement. Even in 1940, only some 50,000 Indonesians were associated with nationalist parties, although it's hard to tell if this was because they feared reprisals from the Dutch, uh, favored Dutch rule, or just didn't have strong feelings one way or the other. I want to take a quick break here, and thank you for listening. And I also wanted to take a moment uh, to thank some of our newest sponsors, such as Andres Le- Leong, uh, House 143 uh, David March, and Tuca Kishin. I hope I pronounced those right. If I didn't, I apologize. Your donations go a far way in keeping us going, and I want to thank all of those who have contributed. And for those who have uh, been sharing your, our show with your friends, thank you very much. We appreciate it. So if you have ideas, questions, or you want to give feedback or contribute to the show, go to our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com. one word. We greatly appreciate your support in helping to keep this show going. Now back to the show. On December the 8th, 1941, Holland declared war on Japan in response to the Japanese attacks on, Americans, on the Americans and the British. The Dutch forces were quickly overcome by the numerically superior, better equipped, and battle-hardened forces of the Japanese and surrendered the colony to them in March 1942. Despite the shortness of the Japanese occupation in World War II, it had profound effects on the formation of Indonesia. Notwithstanding the 300,000 European residents, the Dutch education system, and the high degree of Western influence amongst millions of Indonesians, many welcomed the Japanese as liberators and hoped that the Japanese might grant Indonesia independence. The Japanese quickly outlawed the use of Dutch in public, making Indonesian the primary language. The former Dutch collaborators were out of luck as well. Former aristocrats who had become district heads and residents were killed or injured by angry rioters who called for their abolition. The Dutch schools were closed as the Japanese considered them elitist, impractical, and too academic. The new Japanese schools and youth organizations stressed physical fitness, discipline, toughness, and above all, sacrificial patriotism. The Japanese youth groups reached more youth than the former Dutch schools as well. A half a million youth in Java, for example, took part. These youth groups were sort of a mix between the scouts and ROTC as the children were indoctrinated in military drill and patriotic rhetoric. The Japanese also began the process of building an Indonesian army. This force amounted to some 60,000 men by 1945. The officer training was the same as that provided for junior Japanese officers, emphasizing group solidarity, harsh discipline, uh, physical toughness, and fanatical patriotism. This training was designed to equip young officers, 18 to 25, to become platoon commanders. This, this would form the core of the Indonesian army in the decades to come. The Japanese hoped to use these forces to defend the island against an Allied invasion. However, as we will see, they birthed a Frankensteinian monster they were unable to control. The Japanese did have a different imperial style than the Dutch, but not the type the Indonesians had expected. Their primary goal in capturing the island chain was to access its raw materials, not to help the Indonesians win independence. The Japanese only considered granting the island of Java independence, and even this was touch and go. Sumatra was placed under the command of the 25th Army, which was situated in Malaya, and declared not to be ready for independence. The outer islands were, sparsely populated primitive areas, which shall be retained in the future for the benefit of the Japanese empire, close quote. Political parties were banned, independent newspapers were closed, and opportunities for pursuing a career in law, engineering, and business, all careers available under the Dutch, were curtailed. However, the Dutch invited former nationalist politicians to come work with them in administering the country. Surprisingly, very few politicians declined the opportunity to work with the Japanese. The only significant group to fight against the Japanese occupation was the communist PKI, which remained illegal. Sircano developed a good working relationship with General Emuro Hatashiya, the commander of the Japanese forces in Indonesia. The Indonesians were allowed to form a newspaper on Java and an advisory committee to the Japanese in 1943. The leaders that rose to the top on the local and national level were efficient and capable leaders. The Japanese soon dismissed the bootlickers lickers and the sycophants who lacked popular support amongst the, the people. The Japanese instead wanted leaders who could get things done and could mobilize the region's vast resources for the Japanese war machine. The Japanese, in 1943, set up a harsh system of enforced rice deliveries. Under this system, peasants were forced to sell large portions of their rice yields to the Japanese government at below market value. This rice was then passed on to the Japanese and Indonesian collaborators in the bureaucracy. The Indonesians also experienced a breakdown of health services and pest control, which caused several outbreaks of disease. The loss of trade with Europe and the American attacks against Japanese convoys also led to a collapse of the export market, which led to hundreds of thousands of unemployed. To make matters worse, the harvest of 1944 was almost completely ruined by drought. The Japanese imposed an economic policy of strict austerity, creating great hardship for the Indonesian people. This led to extensive smuggling and the growth of the black market. Bribery and corruption also became a growing problem under the Japanese. Furthermore, the the Japanese military extravagant spending caused hyperinflation as the rupai was one-sixteenth of its value versus under the Dutch just three years earlier. By the end of the war, people were literally dying from starvation in the streets. As the war dragged on, however, the people began to rebel against the Japanese. All over Java and Sumatra, violence was directed at the Japanese and more often the Indonesians who worked on their behalf. A number of village and district leaders were even killed. Nevertheless, the political Indonesian elite hoped that they could achieve independence in the closing days of World War II. They hoped that the Japanese might grant them them independence on the way out or that they could declare independence before the Allies arrived. Sensing the end was near, on May the 28th, a 62-man assembly met in Jakarta to debate the shape of the future, state, The delegates voted for a unitary republic under a strong president. Despite some initial reservations from the Outer Islands, Sukarno was elected the first president. Serkano and his fellow politicians had to walk a tightrope of delicate diplomacy with the Japanese commanders to prevent them from moving against the new republic, while at the same time establishing their authority and legitimacy before the Allies arrived. Therefore, Serkano's first cabinet was composed of men already working with the Japanese. Most Indonesians were taken by surprise that, that August by the Japanese surrender and the Declaration of Independence. Only two groups were ready for this moment, the old PKI, Communist Guard, and the angry Indonesian youth who had been drinking the Japanese Kool-Aid of right-wing nationalism. The communists sprouted up in small groups everywhere after the Japanese surrendered. However, they lacked any centralized control after decades of Dutch and Japanese repression. These small groups basically acted as independent entities despite their claim to be a single force. The youth lacked essential control as well, but made up for it with their numbers. By 1940, there were an estimated 5 million young people on Java between the ages of 15 to 19. The youth movement, primarily based in cities, began replacing the Japanese flag with the red and white banner of Indonesia and public places. They also began writing slogans and putting up posters. By September and October, they were organizing mass rallies. The Republican Army was also formed officially on October the 5th on the basis of the 60,000 officers chained by the Japanese. A pattern soon developed where these crowds of youth with bamboo sticks, knives, and maybe a few pistols would descend on the Japanese bases demanding their guns. The Japanese very often agreed to give them all or some of their weapons. In Java alone, the Japanese handed over some 26,000 rifles and 1,300 machine guns. Most went into the hands of the Indonesian army, but some passed to the youth groups protesting throughout the country. Eventually, the British arrived to restore order until they could be replaced by the Dutch. The British forced the Japanese to stop the transfer of weapons to the Indonesians. They also ordered the Japanese to retake the city of Bung on October the 10th, and fighting broke out between the Japanese and Indonesians. As more British arrived, wholesale fighting broke out between them and the Indonesian youth. Sircano and the Indonesian leadership were able to organize a quick ceasefire to end the fighting, but a British general was killed shortly after by an Indonesian sniper and the fighting resumed. On November the 10th, the British launched a massive attack using air support and naval gunfire. However, they were surprised to run into stiff resistance and an enemy armed with tanks and artillery. They were also confronted with hordes of civilians armed with bamboo sticks and knives throwing themselves in front of their machine guns. and all, probably 15,000 Indonesians probably died in the fighting. In Borneo and the Outer Islands, the Australians arrived before the Indonesian Republic could establish a presence, and these areas were transferred to the Dutch as the Dutch arrived. The Dutch would eventually deploy 120,000 troops to the Dutch East Indies with surplus British and American World War II arms. At this point, the Dutch knew they didn't have the resources to retake the East Indies, and the British were unwilling to win, win the islands back for them. Therefore, the Dutch planned to use the outer islands as a base from which to surround the new Indonesian Republic. Second, the Dutch goal would be to push for a United States of Indonesia. Under this system, each of the islands would have a level of autonomy, and the Dutch would act as a referee. So you might be asking yourself, why would the Dutch even try at this point with their homeland destroyed and such a weak military position to to try to take back these islands? The reason is the Dutch felt that if they lost control of the the Indies, their nation would be reduced to poverty since much of their economy had been based around the exploitation of Indonesia's vast resources. Ironically, the exact opposite thing happened after the Dutch relinquished control of their claims. Meanwhile, by November 1946, under strong British and American pressure, the Dutch agreed to work with the Indonesians to create a United States of Indonesia. Both sides, however, were unhappy with the arrangement. With talks breaking down, the Dutch launched a swift military campaign to occupy the wealthier parts of Java and Sumatra. However, this move failed to improve their their negotiating position, so on December 19, 1948, they tried to destroy the Republic by capturing all of its major cities. The Dutch achieved this task within a week, capturing many of its leaders, but the Republic refused to surrender. Instead, the remaining Republican leadership and army retreated to the countryside to wage guerrilla war against the Dutch. Holland was eventually pressured by the UN and the US, who threatened to cut off funding, especially Marshall Plan funds, to reopen negotiations with the Republic. And in December 1949, the Dutch surrendered to the inevitable, and under the UN, Indonesia was recognized as a sovereign state. Take a quick step back. In 1948, the communists themselves attempted a rebellion to try and gain control and establish a communist state there. Circano and the Republic they threw everything they had against the communists. The communists tried to mobilize the poor farmers of Java but failed, as many farmers uh, thought their rule was too violent and confusing. By the end of November, the government had hunted down and killed most of them. The most significant members of the PKI, including Amir, were executed the following month. Although there is no accurate account of how many Indonesians died, they died in far greater numbers than the Europeans. Estimates of Indonesian deaths in fighting range from 45,000 to 100,000, and civilian dead exceeded about 25,000, and many, have been as, uh, many estimates have been as high as 100,000. A total of 1,200 1, British soldiers were killed or, or went missing in Java and Sumatra in 1945 and 1946, most of them Indian soldiers. More than 5,000 Dutch soldiers lost their lives in Indonesia between 1945 and 1949. Many Japanese died as well. This was one of the first, quote, policing actions of the Cold War, as the Dutch government didn't call it a war, but a policing action. Truman would say the same about Korea only a year later. It also marked one of the first Cold War guerrilla struggles, which we will see again in Vietnam, Algeria, and other places. Indonesia also marked a moment which would become reoccurring, where Western forces achieved a military victory but failed to achieve a political victory. In the end, Indonesia became neither communist nor capitalist, but a system in which the state dominated the formation of capital and the vital relationship with large foreign companies, especially oil companies. The war and revolution weakened or broke most of the legal system that had existed in Indonesia, and the legal system became less reliable as a safeguard versus investment in political patronage, or what some call crony capitalism. A small ethnically mixed urban elite group with a strong Indonesian identity took control of the country. The size of the bureaucracy ballooned as a Jobs were given out as rewards for support during the revolution, as about 2.8 million were estimated to be working for the central government by 1953. Factions within the government sought to extract the nation's wealth while millions continued to live in poverty into the 1990s, well after the Cold War. However, on the other hand, how was this different from Dutch rule? The East Indies, like the new Indonesian Republic, had a centralized state with a powerful chief executive with close ties to large corporations and a rich urban elite who exploited the nation's resources. The only difference was the elites who sat at the top in the political scenery. It was the army which became the strongest faction by the end of the revolution, though it was not until 1966 that the army became strong enough to take the reins of power themselves Through a CIA backed coup, but that's a story for a later episode. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 22, The Fall of the Dutch East Indies and the Rise of Indonesia. Check out our next episode on March the 1st, where we will be examining the late British Empire and its role in the Cold War. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends into history, but still want to help, uh, give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to take a make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show.